You are listening to the FDNY Pearl Podcast, featuring members of the New York City Fire Department. We want to share stories from the field, best practices, lessons learned, and help save lives. In recent years, many large-scale emergency incidents have occurred in New York City, such as the Woody Crest Fire, Sea Street Ferry Crash, and the recent train and subway derailments. These incidents resulted in many patients and have had the potential to seriously overwhelm FDNY resources. Welcome to the FDNY Pro Podcast for Pro EMS. I am your host, Lieutenant Farouk Mohammed, and today we are going to discuss maximizing your resources to manage a mass casualty incident through the application of the Incident Command System. We are pleased to have Captain Charles Fraser discuss some options of maximizing your resources to manage an MCI. Captain Fraser has spent the past 30 years operating in the New York City 911 system, starting his career at Bellevue Hospital on an ambulance. Currently, Captain Fraser is assigned to the FDNY Center for Terrorism and Disaster Preparedness as the program manager for the exercise design section. Captain Fraser has operated at many of the larger mass casualty incidents within New York City, such as the 1993 World Trade Center bombing and 9-11 attacks, plane crashes, and high-rise building fires. Welcome, Captain Fraser, and thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me here today, Farouk. Compared to other jurisdictions, what is unique to managing an MCI in New York City? New York City, in the year 2016, we handled 1.7 million responses in the FDNY on the EMS side, and of that, 3,157 were mass casualty incidents, or an incident that had the potential to become a mass casualty incident. Fairly high number. Most of them were routine fires that we responded to and we operated at. Many produced no patients at all, but they did have a caliber to produce a high patient count. So where we're unique here in the city is that we fortunately have a lot of resources and we have that capability to easily move into an incident with a lot of ambulances and a lot of trained offices to build that incident command system. However, we always have to be cognizant of the 911 system and making sure that we meet our regular response within the 911 system, even when we're having a large patient-producing incident. So in the uniqueness, we also have some specialty vehicles. We have a major emergency response vehicle, or a MERV. We have a mobile respiratory treatment unit. We also have a medical evacuation transportation unit. One of the key things to note with that medical evacuation transportation unit is it's a regionally shared asset. So that was secured through Homeland Security grant funding. We can share that with the tri-state area or anyone who may make that request. So while New York City is unique in many ways, we do have that ability to assist all of our bordering agencies, similar to what we did in Hoboken, New Jersey, where there was a trained derailment. FDNY sent over some resources to assist them as needed, and one of them was that medical evacuation transportation unit. Although we did not transport any agencies, it's nice to have that ability to expand your operation if need. Can you briefly tell us about the incident command system, otherwise known as ICS, and its key components? The National Incident Management System was developed through FEMA a number of years ago, and it serves as a national template that agencies, non-governmental agencies, private sector can utilize when managing a major incident. And it assists them in bringing everyone together. It addresses many of the issues such as span of control, resource allocation, funding. And of course, the common goal is doing the greatest good for the number of people that we're going to serve at this mass casualty incident. 
I know when you operate on an MCI, you have something called sectors. Can you tell us a little bit about the sectors? So underneath the incident command system, we have the medical branch director who basically is an EMS officer in the FDNY, and they become basically the overall manager of the pre-hospital care sector for the mass casualty incident. The additional sectors that can be established are triage unit leader, treatment unit leader, transport unit leader, and a staging area manager. All can be very vital to the outcome of the mass casualty incident. What we have found here in, in New York City is the most critical positions are the triage unit leader because we need to know how many patients are we confronted with, also how many patients could this incident produce. What that will allow us to do is address how much resources we're going to need to manage that incident effectively. Additionally, the other critical position is the staging area manager. They manage the resources coming into the assignment. They basically are the gatekeeper to coordinate the transport of these patients off the scene, especially if we're dealing with critical red tag patients. All right, so when you have these sectors, do you have different officers handling each sector, or do the EMTs and paramedics run the sectors? How does that work? So the initial response to a mass casualty incident in New York City is a EMS field officer, a conditions car officer, most likely would be a lieutenant, which would become the medical branch director. Subsequently, an advanced life support and a basic life support ambulance crew are assigned to support the incident. We do train the EMTs and paramedics initially at the academy on the foundation of incident command so that they have the ability to provide a preliminary report, which we call a 1012, and that gives some basic information. What is the incident? Is it a fire? Is it a train crash? Is it a plane crash? Is it just a simple type of incident? What is the location of the address, the building, or the geographical location? It might be a brush fire, or it might be a motor vehicle accident on a highway as opposed to an actual building address, right? Are there any patients produced? Could it produce any patients? And more so, where is the staging location so that additional resources responding in know where to report to? All of that information is critical for the officer responding in, the EMS officer, that's going to become the medical branch director because it's that foundation that starts to build the incident command system to manage that MCI. In addition to sectors, we have something called a medical evacuation corridor. Can you tell us about that? So in New York City, we do many pre-planned special events, such as New Year's Eve, Thanksgiving Day Parade, uh, West Indian Day Parade, a lot of festivals. Some of these food festivals run 40, 50 blocks. And they bring in millions of people to view these venues. So in the FDNY, we're tasked with quite a few things in managing these planned events, such as fire alarm response, and then, of course, the bigger picture is the pre-hospital care should something happen. So a number of years ago, we had a venue called Super Bowl Boulevard, and it stretched for about 10 blocks right through Times Square, the heart of New York City. And our concern was that if we did have a major incident that produced many patients, how could we bring ambulance resources in quickly? So we coined the term in FDNY, medical evacuation corridor. When we're going to use that plan, it's very important to coordinate with law enforcement. They are tasked with the traffic plan, and that traffic plan addresses the movement in and off the scene of ambulance resources. So here in New York City, we may identify a certain street, that requires that plan to be put into place, and law enforcement knows that they need to remove unnecessary vehicles and now create a staging area for us. And it allows the incident commander now to direct the firefighters removing patients to that medical evacuation corridor. 
And we found by using that terminology amongst other agencies, it brings everyone to a common operating picture in how to move critical patients should that incident occur. Different than that is a patient removal corridor. A patient removal corridor is something that is nationally recognized. However, here in the city, we use that more for something like in a high-rise fire where we identify an elevator bank or a stairwell, not necessarily a street where we need to move vehicles to, but sort of think of as a lane that we can just move patients through to get to an area. It might be a casualty collection point or it might even be a triage location. That's the difference between a medical evacuation corridor, pre-planned event, versus that patient removal corridor, which is an unplanned event, something that we can set up as needed. The EMS officers that are assigned to the various sectors within an event are aware that they have that latitude to create that patient removal corridor. Key thing is communication. We have to make sure that the medical branch director and the incident commander know that we're confronted with a high number of patients that require immediate removal. Yeah, and for our listeners, if they look at the footage from the Sea Streak ferry crash that happened uh, a few years ago, you can see in the video that we have a well-established patient removal corridor and how that worked. So if they want to take a look at that, go on you know, YouTube or something and uh, review that. Yeah, that was an interesting mass casualty incident on a very busy, very cold January day with 300-some occupants on side of ferry. We identified 84 patients, of which two were critical and were removed fairly rapidly from the scene, but 74 additional patients had to be removed. So what worked there was establishing that patient removal corridor, bringing them out onto the street, and then assessing them further on a re-triage and moving them into the ambulances to area hospitals. How can agencies meet the mission of providing pre-hospital care and transport when faced with an MCI, which has or could produce a high patient count? The critical objective is to remove red tag patients or critically injured patients. Furthermore, is to perform triage, and that is done through managing your resources, bringing the right number of resources in to address transport and treatment, additionally bringing in resources to do continual triage if need be. One of the concerns would be utilizing other resources that may help you. For instance, utilizing firefighters to move victims to an ambulance. That would free up personnel to do continual treatment, continual triage. Red tags, of course, are critical and they need to be removed and identified quickly. I've always felt that as soon as you encounter critical patients, you're going to go through a lot of resources very quickly. So you have to bear in mind that when you're confronted with either a large number of critical patients or a large patient count, you have to factor in additional resources to have success in in moving these people off the scene quickly. To start, agencies should look at their vulnerability. What resources do they have available? What mutual aid do they have available? Do they have a mutual aid plan in place? What are their capabilities from within to expand? And likewise, do they have any additional resources that could assist them? Also, what other agencies may be part of a mass casualty incident? Do you need law enforcement? Do you need fire operations resources that could assist you? Do you have transportation agencies, such as utilizing a bus that could transport non-critical injuries to a hospital? I know within the department, when we have a large-scale event that might occur, we have the capability of getting members to stay an additional tour or do other things like that. Um, Are there other examples of uh, supplementing resources within the agency? We can do a recall process in which 
off-duty members can be contacted via cell phone or a voicemail message system directing them to report to duty. That would enhance our operation if need be. And the good thing with that is we're utilizing people who are already trained within the system. So that could kind of allow us to rapidly expand. We certainly could bring in the entire workforce if need be. But we also have the ability to bring in just limited by platoon or by tour. We can kind of segregate out as to what we exactly need to manage both our 911 system as well as what we feel we're going to need to do a long-term support of a mass casualty incident. Now, I remember working during the 9-11 attack at the World Trade Center site, and we had resources coming in from everywhere. Is there ever such thing as too many? I mean, for that, it was sort of understandable, even though it was difficult to keep track of all the different people that were there. Is there ever a such thing as having too many resources at a scene? Certainly that can happen. It could happen by freelancing, units just um, showing up at a scene, thinking that by their response to this incident, it's for the greater good, when in essence, as I said earlier, the concern is to have the proper amount of resources to manage the patients that we may have or the patients that we do have that are actually on scene. A lot of that has to do with the medical branch director and the incident commander working closely to decide how big is the incident, what level of ambulance coverage do we need, and how do we want to expand the incident command system. I talked earlier about those sectors. That is a good way to manage span of control. When you manage that span of control, now you have that ability to utilize the resources that you have on scene. If you have too many resources, the concern might be accountability. You know, who's keeping an eye on all these people? A good way is to establish these additional sectors, utilize span of control to manage. And of course, in New York City, we never turn resources away. We get a handle on the incident. How big is it? Do we need them? And if not, we release them to the 911 system. Yeah, and I think it's important to note that we don't promote freelancing because that's a security issue. And also it's difficult to keep track of the people that are there. So people that are coming into work should notify the agency that they're coming in and not just show up. You know, I, know, I understand that people want to help at these scenes, but it's important that they let the department know that they're going to be there and not just freelance. Consistent with that is that they report into a, a supervisor or an officer, their tour officer when they get there, or they take the direction of the dispatcher who has the bigger picture of the 911 system and the need of how many resources are needed at an incident. Is there a trigger point in which mutual aid will be necessary to manage the incident? In New York City, as big as we are, and we turn out nearly 1,000 ambulances in 24 hours, both from the FDNY and support of our voluntary hospitals and our volunteer ambulance corps, we've recognized the importance to have that mutual aid availability. If we are confronted with an ice storm or a hurricane or even another terrorist attack, our concern might be that we need to support our 911 system by bringing in these additional mutual aid resources. And we have memorandum of understanding with those agencies as to what we will call and, and the process to do that. Of concern there is the time frame for those resources to get on scene, to actually operating in your 911 system. And additionally, what level of resources are you going to need? Also, as we saw during Hurricane Sandy, we were greatly affected here in the New York City metro area. 
Mutual aid would have been difficult because most of the eastern seaboard was being hit by the same storm. So our concern there would be that that mutual aid may not be in existence um, readily right from the counties that border New York City. Our concern there would be going through Homeland Security, through FEMA, and getting assets from another part of the country, as we did, but it took some time for that. Here at the FDNY, we have many resources at our fingertips, and we have this ability to do mutual aid. But there are other smaller agencies out there that may not have those same kind of resources. So it's important for them to have a good relationship with their regional emergency departments, like their fire, police, and EMS departments, in case they have a big event in their area or their town. That goes back to assessing your, your vulnerability as well as your capability. Who can assist me? And do they understand my needs? What are your thoughts on the use of alternate transport capabilities during an MCI? I remember being on calls involving school bus accidents where we had the operator drive the bus to the hospital with us on board instead of using 10 or 15 ambulances for those 30 or so stable patients. Is getting a New York City bus, for example, something we can easily coordinate for use during an MCI? We have a lot of alternative transport vehicle capabilities. One of them is that medical evacuation transportation unit I spoke of, the regionally shared asset. However, what we found is that we need to ensure that these patients are attended to. The way that we felt best is to put those patients onto one of our vehicles, this medical evacuation transport unit or a medical respiratory treatment unit, depending on what the scope of the illness or injuries are, and putting EMTs on board and paramedics to assist them in care during transport. Additionally, you know, having those specialty vehicles are nice within our tri-state area. However, across the country, prior to us having these specialty vehicles, we just used a regular commuter bus every day. And we had a memorandum of understanding established with the MTA in New York City Transit that we could utilize a bus. But again, we need to put pre-hospital care providers on that vehicle to make that transport. And along with that is making sure that the hospital is capable to receive a high number of patients in one location. We transport the non-critical patients, in other words, those green tag type patients uh, in that alternative vehicle. If the patients require immobilization or they're non-ambulatory or they are critical, of course, we're going to use ambulance resources initially to get them off the scene. As we said, our common goal here in a pre-hospital environment is to get critical patients such as your red tags off the scene. The MTA Atlantic Avenue station derailment, which produced about 104 patients. On scene, we only had 10 ambulances, but we had five of these specialty resource vehicles. So they put 31 patients in each of these mobile respiratory treatment units. So in upwards of 66 patients were transported by just two vehicles. Um, that allows our 911 system to remain intact. We're not pulling a lot of ambulance resources in. And we did transport uh, approximately 25 of those patients by ambulance. So. Not only is it important to have the resources, you have to have the right kind of resources. Now, if you have an event at, let's say, a nursing home or a hospital where you have to remove a bunch of patients from these facilities, something like the METU would come in handy because we have bariatric patient capability, for example. Right. And if there's an agency that doesn't have that, that could pose a serious problem. Again, that's knowing your agency's capabilities and assessing that if I do have a bariatric patient, how will I move that? If I have a patient on a ventilator, a large number of vent assist patients, 
how will I coordinate that? Some of those evacuation scenarios can use a lot of resources from your agency, and that you need to have some pre-planning if you know that you're going to be vulnerable to that type of scenario, especially my thought is natural hazards. When you look at what's going on across the country with hurricanes and snowstorms and that, that we're very vulnerable to managing the movement of patients, and we have to have that right resource to do that. Based on your experience as an ICS instructor and from your experience operating on large-scale events, is the issue of resources either having too little or too many more of a concern, or is it how these resources are managed more critical to a successful operation? I would say management of resources. You know, you look at the triad of failure in, in ICS, and it's communication, coordination, and command. You know, you have to communicate what you need, you have to take command of the incident. You have to coordinate your resources. So being that sector officer, it's understanding what resources you have and doing the greater good. You know, if I have critical patients, then assigning them the right resource. In this case, it might be advanced life support to move them to the area hospital. It might be utilizing EMTs and BLS ambulance crews to do basic life support, as well as doing triage. And subsequently, Knowing that you have the availability, if it exists, to utilize firefighters or other entities within your jurisdiction to assist you. Here in New York City, we have the ability to use CFR engine companies. So they are trained to a basic life support level. And additionally, they can assist us in doing basic life support application in a treatment area. As well as, more so, we can utilize firefighters to move victims or move patients that can be very labor-intensive in the EMS environment. A lot of our ambulance resources get tied up with just moving patients from the scene of the incident to the ambulance, whereas if we utilize firefighters or other trained members, that frees up the pre-hospital care providers to do triage, to do treatment, and uh, I think that's a better balance to use your resources. Some of our listeners may not know that we're not all cross-trained here, that we have different training and different capabilities. You want to talk about that a little bit? In 1996, the FDNY merged with EMS, so it's been about 20 years now. And we're not cross-trained. What I mean by that is that on the EMS side of the house, we manage pre-hospital care. Anything involving a mass casualty incident that is pre-hospital care, whether it be from triage to treatment and or transport to an area hospital, involves EMS. Likewise, on the fire operations side, we do have these CFR engine companies that are trained to provide basic life support. They can also do victim movement. So EMS is not trained to the fire operations level. You know, we're not fighting fires. We're handling pre-hospital care. And likewise, our counterparts on the fire operations side, their main mission is to get control of the incident, give support to the EMS medical branch as needed. Seems to be working well so far. If you look at some of the past large-scale mass casualty incidents, identifying early on that we're going to need those resources allows the uh, fire chief, the incident commander, to maybe call in an additional alarm to assist EMS, whether it be uh, ladder companies just to do patient movement or CFR-trained engine companies that would work under the direction of an EMS officer in a treatment area to provide basic life support. In regards to training, how should agencies ensure their EMTs, paramedics, and officers are best prepared to manage an MCI? And what kind of training does the FDNY currently have in place? Here in the FDNY, what we have done 
to train our personnel to manage a mass casualty incident is start day one of their entry into the department. So when they start at the EMS Academy, EMTs and paramedics are trained in providing basic information. How big of an incident? Where is the incident? Is there any patients? Are additional resources needed? And they'll fulfill that role and give that information to the dispatcher until we can get an EMS officer, which is a little more seasoned and a little more trained in incident command. They receive approximately 80 hours of incident command training upon promotion to lieutenant. And then subsequently, captains receive an additional 40 hours of training. Continual training is very important. As well as we deliver patient care, critical patient or a very ill patient, and we're very comfortable in that environment, we need to be comfortable in managing a mass casualty incident. As I said, we managed 3,100 responses last year. However, not many of them produced many patients at all. But we still had the ability to go through giving a preliminary report, giving a progress report, setting up sectors, and being ready to receive patients should they occur. So at an agency level, it's kind of continually training. Put this into your training document that, you know, once a month or once every two months, we're going to host an MCI exercise or an MCI drill and go over what are the different sectors and what is the role and responsibility when you're operating within that sector. Over the years, I've been on many drills where we practice how to operate on MCIs. How important is that for our members to keep doing those drills? Well, aside from classroom training, there's what we call tactical training. And that is one area within the FDNY that we really have brought EMS and fire resources together in continual training in how to manage a mass casualty incident. We've analyzed many mass casualty incidents, both nationally and internationally, and we now take that application and look at how are we prepared to manage such an incident in New York City. One of the great drills that we do is the May Day exercise at Randall's Island at the Fire Academy, where EMS officers, EMTs, and paramedics get to actually manage simulated fire scene with a firefighter mayday. And we uh, have actually put together a comprehensive mayday management plan, as well as doing some high-rise training. And we also do mobile training now, where we send an EMS officer and a fire officer to a firehouse, and we bring ambulance resources to the firehouse. And the mobile training end of it might be tourniquet usage, or something very simple. They might talk about how to manage a new concept in mass casualty incident delivery. For our listeners who don't know what a mayday is, that's when you have a firefighter who's either trapped in some sort of distress. It could be something as serious as a cardiac arrest. And that's a drill that we do on a regular basis where fire and EMS are working together to handle the situation. Yeah, and we've seen, unfortunately, that we've had to put this plan in place on the EMS side within New York City. And of course, training every day is a key component. As we wrap up this podcast, are there any other points you'd like to make for our listeners? Some of the key takeaways should be continual training, communication, understanding you need to manage the incident, always accountability. The safety of those pre-hospital care providers is paramount. You know, in finishing today, I'd like to leave you with a quote from Dr. Martin Luther King, and he said, life's most persistent and urgent question is, what are you doing for others? So how I relate that quote is, by being very proficient in incident command and having that ability to continually train in incident command and being comfortable in managing a mass casualty incident, we are doing the best we can for others. That's a great quote, and I think it sums up what we're talking about and 
The point is just to do the best we can for our community. Thank you again, Captain Fraser, and also want to thank our listeners for tuning in today to our FDNY Pro podcast. We hope you join us again to hear from other FDNY EMS professionals. I am your host, Lieutenant Farouk Mohammed, signing off. Be safe out there. Thank you, Farouk, and everyone remain safe. FDNY Pro is online at fdnypro.org. Subscribe today and get inside access to the FDNY. Learn more about our publications, professional conferences, and other tools for first responders. Train with New York's Bravest. Twenty-four hours a day, seven days a week, three hundred and sixty-five days a year, and when seconds count, the men and the women of the FDNY are there for us to protect us and keep us safe when the unthinkable happens. No matter the challenge, no matter the danger, our firefighters and EMTs serve with honor, dedication, and bravery. New York's bravest are there for us. Let's be there for them. Your support of the FDNY Foundation ensures that the world's best fire department has the world's best training, equipment, and education. Go to fdnyfoundation.org and help New York's bravest save a life today.